Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today, we will be talking about The Woman in the Window. The first half of this podcast will be spoiler-free, and then we will get into spoilers because we want to talk about that ending. And uh, (laughs) then we'll finish up with Recently Watched. But I'm just, I'm eager to jump into this film because... Because you love it. Because I love it. I, I think it is the best film of the year, and I'll tell you <laughs> why. No. Um, this is a film no one seemed to want until they realized, like, like they wanted it until they realized that they did it. Uh, it's based off a book by uh, author A.J. Finn, which isn't the author's real name. I forget what the author's real name is. He's a guy. It's probably with- not even real. <laughs> so. Because what? he was accused of a bunch of just, like, making up in his entire life story. Right, yeah. There's a great, it's like, what, was it New Yorker? that had that article yeah Yeah, like about like the author and his sort of like dubious past um but this book i think sort of was able to ride the wave of uh like that i think kind of started with gone girl and was you know the girl on the train and sort of these psychological thrillers that had this one we changed girl to woman (laughs) exactly (laughs) and the thing is is like you know if you if you track backwards a little bit on the one hand, it's like, oh, well, this is just a pulpy thriller. Like the idea is like, there's this woman and she's an agoraphobic and she's shut into her home and she believes that she's witnessed a murder. It's rear window with a few added twists. Um, but it wasn't, you know, and, and this is like, it's fine to just be like a pulpy, like beach read. Like there's no problem with that. But I think Gone Girl kind of changed the stakes because on the surface, Gone Girl is like, is kind of a beach read, but Jillian Flynn really injected it with a lot of great, essentially feminist commentary about yeah. what women are expected to be, what the news media expects them to be. And then, you know, you bring in David Fincher and it's a prestige film. And I think Gone Girl is an amazing movie. I think it's it's Fincher as most vicious, but then he kind of sets a tone that then other directors feel like they need to follow. And so you, when you reach Woman in the Window, it's crazy that you have like, so you have Joe Wright, who's this prestigious director, director of Pride and Prejudice, Anna Karenina, Hannah, Darkest Hour, and the cast, this is this is an a, amazingly stacked cast. So you not only have Amy Adams in the lead role, you have Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore, Jennifer Jason Lee, Anthony Mackie, Brian Tyree Henry, uh, Wyatt Russell and uh, Tracy Letts. Who also wrote the screenplay. Who also is credited with writing the screenplay. screenplay. (laughs) Yes. And so it's like, oh, well, this is a big deal. And so the film was originally set up at at 20th Century Studios. And then I think, you know, the film did not test well. Well, to go back a little bit, it was shot. Go back a little bit. Because I don't know if the testing happened before or after the purchase by Disney. So it happened before. So they shot this in August of 2018, wrapped it in October. They thought they were ready to go. And then they had test screening and the test screenings were bad. Apparently audiences were confused by the ending. So Fox was like, well, let's um, do some rewrites and do some reshoots. I don't know if those reshoots happened before, during, or after the Fox sale to Disney. Um, Cause the Fox sale to Disney, I think was in the offing and, 28 around 2018 it was mm-hmm. like, yeah it, like it was like it started in 2018 kind of wrapped in 2019 yeah yeah so a you know and then 
Disney, I think, re-edited it. Tony Gilroy was hired to rewrite the or to write new scenes that were then reshot. We think Joe Wright directed them. I don't know. Who knows? It's possible he didn't. Um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross were originally going to do the score, but then they left so they could do Soul. Uh, so Danny Elfman replaced them. But essentially, See, my understanding movie, with with Reznor and Ross is actually because the film was changed so much, their score no longer worked, and they just left. Oh, that's possible. I hadn't heard that, but that makes sense. Um, so there's what yeah. I'm saying is there's a there's an unheard Reznor Ross score out in the wild. That oh, is a okay. possibility. Yeah, that's possible. Um, but yeah, I mean they shot this thing in 2018, and then they were like reshooting it probably in 2019. And then it just kind of sat on the shelf because it was it was one of those when Disney bought Fox, it was like on the release calendar and it got pulled. So it was like Disney was trying to figure out what to do with it. And then uh, they offloaded it to Netflix. Yeah, the, <laughs> well, like then the pandemic hit. So it was like, okay, so there's no, it was basically like, and there must have been, <laughs> I will say this, it is deeply, deeply funny to me that the director of The Empty Man had a, you must release this, my movie in theaters clause, but Woman in the Window did not. So it's like, yeah. we have to release The Empty Man, but we don't have to release The Woman in the Window. Yeah. I mean, it, it helps that The Empty Man is a better film than uh, The Woman in the Window. Yeah, I mean, here's what uh, here's what Tracy Letts said about it in 2019, um, which I thought was very funny. Uh, Tracy Letts, who wrote the screenplay, or is credited with writing the screenplay and stars in the movie. Uh, he says, it kind of sucked. I read the book and I thought, oh, this will make a good movie. I can do this job. And then I got into the weeds of it. I was like, oh shit, this is hard. I was also working with a lot of producers, a director, and they had a lot of notes and it was hard. Um, he says when the film was screened for an audience, they didn't like it. And so he said there have been some rewrites and reshoots that I didn't have anything to do with. So we'll see what happens. Um, he says, I felt we made the movie we set out to make. So I'm a little confused by that. Uh, speaking about the um, audience reaction. Uh, he said, but it's a thriller and people have certain expectations about the way a thriller works. I haven't seen the redone version and we'll see what it looks like. You always try to choose things carefully because it's going to take a lot of time out of your life. So you want to choose projects very carefully, but there's only so much you can do to safeguard against intangibles, things you don't know are coming down the road. Um, so yeah, he essentially was like, it was very hard. You had a lot of uh, cooks in the kitchen and it sounds like they were maybe trying to do something a little different than your standard thriller. And then audiences were like fuck that and then tony gilroy came in to turn it into a standard thriller and, yeah and sort of the, the weird middle ground and like the way the film leads off it feels very much like yeah it's a thriller but a hitchcockian thriller which is that it's mm -hmm. more it's not about the thrills it's not about giving you that adrenaline jolt it's about suspense yeah. and again like this film hat tips rear window in the first two minutes yeah. like it, it knows where it's coming from but then it kind of wants to be this sort of psychological drama that kind of has an undercurrent of being a thriller, like a suspense thriller. And I have to say, like, uh, I mean, if we want to get into now, like our opinions on the film, I was not like for the first for actually up until the climax of the film, I was like, this is not good, but it's not the worst thing I've ever seen in the world. <laughs> yeah, It's shot very, I, I like the compositions. I like how the film is shot to basically that the house mirrors your protagonist's psyche. And it's like, it's trying to convey that visually. I do think the twist is very obvious uh, where, where, where it's coming from. And I think, but I think had it sort of held fast to what it was trying to do at least in the again up until the climax 
you have a film that's interestingly like the the about the perils of voyeurism and escapism that essentially by retreating to fiction you run you don't address your trauma and i think that that's not a bad angle to take um i think it's a little tedious to get there i think it's weird that it has such a, a stacked cast to get you there um it's like joe joe wright called in every favor or maybe it was just like Gary Oldman wants to work with Julianne Moore and Julianne Moore wants to work with Amy Adams. And, you know, it's like, and so it's basically people who want to work with each other. And it's like, it's not a big ask for them because most of the film takes place on a set. You know, it's not like- I'm sure like Julianne Moore shot all of her scenes in like a day and a half. Exactly. Like it's not, this is not one of those like, whoa, what an arduous production. Like this is a very easy production for people to get in and out of. Um, and it's like, well, maybe it'll be a hit. It's got Joe Wright. It's got talented people. Maybe that'll be good. Who knows? I mean, and Gary Oldman will do, I mean, this is not the worst film Gary Oldman has made. I mean, Gary Oldman will show up in a lot of VOD stuff uh, for the, for the paycheck. Um, (laughs) tiptoes. Yeah. After you do tiptoes, you can do anything. Uh, (laughs) not because tiptoes is good, just because there is no more bottom. Um, but I feel like the, I, I kind of, I respected where it was going up until the end. And then at the end, it fell apart completely. What What did you think, Adam? Yeah, I thought it was okay. And uh, listeners of the podcast know I'm a sucker for thrillers. So, you know, I'll watch any handsomely made thriller. I'm not super into like trashy thrillers or pulpy thrillers. Um, you know, I adore legal thrillers. Um, but stuff like, you know, even like Double Jeopardy from the 90s, like I'm into that. So, it you know, it it struck that chord with me a little bit and it was kind of intriguing in that regard, but also it just felt so obvious, like painfully obvious that there really was no suspense. You kind of know after about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you kind of know where this is going um, and where it's going to end up. So at that point, it's just kind of enjoying the, the pretty trappings. And as you mentioned, I really like the shot composition. Bruno Delbanel was the cinematographer. Um, he shoots he shoots the Coen Brothers movies when Roger Deakins isn't shooting them, um, but he also he shot, shot the Harry weirdest Potter. looking Harry Potter. Yeah, I was gonna say he shot Harry Potter, Potter and the Half Blood Prince, and he shot Darkest Hour for Joe Wright, which was Joe Wright's film uh, that he made right before this. Um, so yeah, some of the composition stuff and the stuff they're doing with color um, in the film, I think, is really interesting. Uh, and where Joe Wright is putting the camera, I mean, we obviously know Joe Wright uh, is kind of known for his long takes that he does because they're usually pretty interesting. Um, or you know he's doing them in a in a different or unique kind of way, um, but beyond that, I was kind of bored by the story. And and when you reach the end, which we'll talk about when we get to the spoiler portion, um, because for me it it it's a film that, as you said, it begins as a Hitchcockian suspense thriller, then it becomes a psychological drama, then it becomes something else, uh, which we'll talk about later. When it became something else, I was really off of it. I was just kind of like, all right, ready for this to be over. This is stupid. Um, and also felt kind of offensive. It felt offensive. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's not just dumb. It's also kind of exploitative yeah. and kind of undercuts everything that, like, if you were trying to build anything before, it just demolishes it. But, like, you know, Amy Adams is solid. But as you said in your review, it feels like every scene is meant to be an Oscar clip. And at that point, it just kind of drains any kind of specialness from it because it's just her doing acting yeah, with a capital A. It is. And it's weird to see it from her because the best performances of her career are performances where she doesn't need to play that up. She doesn't need to give you most acting. Mm -hmm. She's 
you know, when you when you look at something like Arrival or Nocturnal Animals or The Master, it's a very different kind of performance. Doubt, like these are, it's one thing to be like, I'm playing broad if I'm in, if like in Enchanted, like that's a family comedy and she's great in that. But for her dramas, she's usually a little more reserved and controlled. And when you look at this and you look at Hillbilly Elegy, they're just very sort of, I, you know, plan to the cheap seats kind of performances that I don't, and maybe that's an issue of like how she was directed or, or just her take on the character, but it, it, it doesn't serve her or the material well. I do think she's a performer who has a tremendous natural gift, but maybe has a tendency to kind of lock into what you're talking about a little bit and needs a bit like needs good direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so like something like vice, I think is a little over the top. Um, but I don't think Adam McKay, I don't think he connected with that one um, very well. Um, but the thing that just preceded this, I think, uh, when she was filming was Sharp Objects, the HBO right. miniseries. And she's tremendous in that show. And in that show, she's also playing an addict, um, someone who's like suffering from psychological trauma, um, suffering issues, but she doesn't feel the need to go big in every single scene. Um, and she's talked about the collaborative nature of that set, working with Jean-Marc Ballet, um, the filmmaker uh, on that. But even something like her, I think, is a really beautifully understated performance. Um, and then, you know, as you said, obviously, like The Master and Arrival and Nocturnal Animals, I think she's really terrific. And uh, my eyes have not seen the glory of Hillbilly Elegy, so I'm going to have to take your <laughs> word on that one. Well, and but- the thing is, is that, like, she excels at playing, like, believable people, you know? And when you look at Hillbilly Elegy or Woman in the Window, it feels like you're watching tortured woman, psychologically tortured woman. And it's just, it, it's a, it's the kind of thing where you need, it needed, if it needed anything. And I, again, I don't think, I don't think her performance could have saved either film. Uh, they're just, they're too beset with problems beyond just her performance. But I think she needed to scale back rather than, you know, these sort of let me really sink my teeth into it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I don't know if that is... It feel, it's hard to judge this film because we don't know what's a reshoot. I mean- ha- Hashtag it, release the Joe Wright cut. Yes. Uh, it is very telling that there was no junket, traditional junket for this movie. Like the Joe Wright, Amy Adams did not do a ton of interviews. I know Amy Adams was on like Seth Meyers and I think she did a couple of other interviews. I don't think anyone has Joe Wright for interviews. If they do, I would like to see it um, because it, I, I would imagine he doesn't necessarily stand by this as like, this is my vision, this is my film. There are scenes where you can see like, oh, this is Joe Wright. So there's a, there's a dramatic turn in the middle of the film where some of the psychological aspects of Amy Adams are revealed. That entire set piece feels like yes. Joe Wright. Like the way that the camera's moving, where he's putting the actors, how oh. he's revealing his information entirely feels like Joe Wright. Yes, it does. And that is few and far between. <laughs> and that, kind of. Well, and that's the thing. And that feels like if that's Joe Wright, that's kind of the movie that he wanted to make. He wanted to make a movie about psychological trauma. Yeah. And like, I mean, and, and, and you can see that from the script. Like it's about a woman who is trapped by her trauma and she you know sees a world outside and yet that only exacerbates how trapped she feels yeah um but then when you try to turn it into something else it just feels false uh in a way that's kind of offensive yeah so it's really hard to judge this in terms of 
Joe Wright's filmography and, and you and I were talking about this before, but like Joe Wright has made some not great films, but they're always interesting. Like yeah. Like I would. Yeah, yeah. Like I think this, like the soloist is not a good movie, but there are scenes in there that are like, there's a scene where uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is just hearing music and Joe Wright just shows colors on the screen, colors set to music, which is a really bold thing to do in a major motion picture. Like that's something that's, almost experimental that you would expect to sort of see in, in a, almost a, a, I don't want to say a student film, but like just something that, that a Hollywood, you would not see in a Hollywood film and it's there. And like pan is, doesn't work at all, but it's glorious. <laughs> I, like pan. I think it's gloriously weird in, in how <laughs> campy it's willing to be. If an entire um, generation will defend hook uh, and I am one of those, I think pan is a far more interesting version of that. Like, I don't hmm. think pan works for adults necessarily. I think it, probably works pretty well for kids maybe um but you also have objectively like you know hugh jackman singing nirvana with a bunch of pirates is just objectively strange that is a very weird choice and hugh jackman even talked about it he was like joe wright just said let's do it and like there's no there's no internal logic for it how do these pirates know nirvana doesn't this movie take place in the early 1900s <laughs> yeah sure but you know we're gonna do it but also so. they have an airship so like where exactly yeah. are we drawing the lines of reality here exactly i think that movie is also really touching i i found um you know the way he approached the young peter pan story as kind of like a mother son story mm -hmm. or as or of a boy looking for his mother i thought was very emotional right. but joe wright fully flat out said he thought his career was over after that movie like he had lost warner brothers a lot of money he considered quitting he considered never making another movie again and he said the darkest hour is the thing that kind of pulled him out of that despair so that kind of makes me a little worrisome that he's not going to either retreat to something safer or take a significant period of time off after Woman in the Window. Because yeah. that's, you know, I, I, I think he's a very good filmmaker. I mean, Pride and Prejudice, I think, is arguably the best Jane Austen adaptation ever made. My wife would agree, disagree with you. We both love Pride and Prejudice, but she believes Sense and Sensibility is the best. That is the close. I think it's probably between those two. I think those two are probably the best, but... But still, for a movie that recent to be, you know, I think that movie is just astoundingly good. Oh, it's gorgeous. I love it. But then to show something like Hannah, I think Hannah, and I know there are people who like hate Hannah, but I really Hannah's like Hannah. Hannah's dope. Yeah. Those people Hannah's are wrong. tons of fun. Hannah is great. But then like Anna Karenina, I think we all expected like, oh, he's going back to a period piece. But the idea of like setting that entire film up as a theater experience like it's theatrical like the mm -hmm. characters exist on a stage i thought and, that was brilliant and also just leaning into the fact that that is, that it's a hard adaptation that it's like yeah, yeah we're, we can't we can't devote three hours of this movie to agrarian culture in russia <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly so we'll just cut to some scenes in wheat fields and that'll be that yeah and that'll so yeah i think anna, like so yeah even anna karenina which is a film i'm not like gaga for i think it's an interesting film you do um, hate atonement though I do think Atonement is dog shit, but I think that's really- <laughs> I, I like Atonement. I think Atonement is go gorgeously filmed. I think the script is off. I just think it is a horrible, horrible story. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to wind you up on Atonement. Yeah, just get me going on Atonement again, which is again, great, you know, on the surface, but it's just, I mean, can I spoil the ending of Atonement as that, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> where she's talking about like, well, I gave them the happy ending they never had in life. And I'm like, you fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> What you, you ruined their lives and you're trying to comfort yourself there is no atonement <laughs> you suck 
someone's gonna uh, write me now it's like that's the point of the movie i'm like well, it didn't make it very well uh, yeah i would also argue that's probably a, a source material issue as well but he did still choose to adapt that uh fully but darkest hour i think is is i think it's a very good film i think it's a little boring for yeah I, well i think my thing with darkest hour is that i think it's his safest film i think it's just yeah. a very down the middle like i think the the i think it's a film tremendously helped by del Bunnell's cinematography mm-hmm. and the um oh gosh the, the the composer his name is escaping me oh dario cool. marinelli i think marinelli his score is fantastic yeah um it's really helped by that. And Gary Oldman's good. I wouldn't have given him the Oscar for that year or that, like, I think he had, that to me felt like a, a, a makeup Oscar, like sort of a lifetime achievement Oscar. Um, but it's fine. Yeah. A, his Black Mirror episode, I'm not a huge fan of, and I'm a fan of him and Rashida Jones and, and Michael Shore. I just don't. But don't like nosedive. I don't necessarily think those day works. All of this to say, like all of these films we just talked about are so diverse, but they're not like journeyman. You can still feel mm-hmm. you're right in each and every one of them, which is why I think Woman in the Window is such a disappointment because it almost doesn't feel like a right film. It doesn't. And I think at this point we should probably get to the ending. Yeah. Um, let's talk spoilers. Let's talk spoilers. If you haven't seen Woman in the Window and don't want to be spoiled, stop listening. So... <sighs> Up until it's who you thought it was. Well, it's not even like it's who you thought it was. It's like, why does it have to be anybody? Yeah. Like we've established at this point that she's hallucinating. And like to me, the ending of the film is like, oh, I can recognize my trauma. Like I've Mm -hmm. I'm gonna stop running from this delusion that my husband and child are alive, that I couldn't deal with my guilt over their deaths and my responsibility for it. And I have to confront that. And all that I've been doing up to this point are just ways, are escapism. It's voyeurism to escape, looking at my own culpability in my own life. So I made up this fanciful tale about a murder across the street that I couldn't solve. But it's like, no, the murder was all right. You know, there actually was a murder. You were right. (laughs) You're not delusional. I was like, wait, wait, we just established that she's losing. No, 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 no. The kid is, is, is actually a murderer. And I'm like, okay, well, if that's the case, then you've kind of undone everything because it's, she was right. <laughs> she, there's really nothing that she needs to face. And also like there's, and where it gets offensive to me is like, it's a film that's like, it wants you to sympathize with her mental illness, but also the kid, the son, well, he's just crazy. Yeah, he's just <laughs> he's a just, psychopath. He's just a crazy murderer and <laughs> not a real person. And he's a crazy murderer who's going to kill Wyatt Russell and then shove a garden trowel into Amy Adams' face. And there's no depth there. There's no even like reason why. There's no, no childhood trauma, which maybe would have even worked better because she's a, you know, she a child psychologist. psychologist. Right. Um, it's just like, it's purely just like, I enjoy watching people die. So then it becomes an episode of Dexter. Right. And, and not only that, but it's like, and to me, this feels like if this was a product of the reshoots, they fucking bungled it in a big way. It's like, it felt like, well, if you people want thrills, here are thrills. And I'm like, yeah. technically, yes, in that like fast paced things are happening, but not in a way that's like connected to the story or the characters in any meaningful way. Like it's, it gets real dumb real fast. It also just like parts of it don't make sense. Like the like Wyatt Russell's character feels like he was the victim of reshoots or rewrites because it's like 
the first time you meet him, he seems like a nice guy. Like he's mm -hmm. offering to help her with stuff. And then all of a sudden he's just super standoffish with her and he hates her guts. And then he just like refuses to talk about how he met Catherine and like spent the night with her. Yeah. Because of his parole or like, it just feels like that yeah. was just kind of like, well, let's get, we got to come up with some excuse why he doesn't want to talk to the police. Yeah. We have to, we have to do this. And then like, but like, you know, so he doesn't like Amy Adams anymore, but then he like sacrifices his life to save her. Yeah. And it, it's just weird. And like, I, and look, I haven't read the book. So if someone wants to be like, no, no, this is how it happens in the book. I Wikipedia the book. It is almost exactly the book, except with even less. Um, what was the difference? Like it didn't even have. Um, it was like he was the kid was fully adopted. Like neither Gary Oldman nor Jer Jennifer Jason Lee were his birth parents. Okay. So it was like this was like his adoptive mother who had tracked him down or something like that. All right. So it was it was like that. Maybe that was the movie. I don't remember. But it was. Oh, but he is but like a was, psycho psychopath. He in is the a book. psychopath, and he's the one that comes and kills her at the end. <laughs> this is just me reading the Wikipedia synopsis. Oh, he kills Amy Adams in the book. No, he comes and tries to kill. Her tries to kill. Okay. He's like, I'm the killer. I did it all along. Uh, <laughs> I think you know the thing is is I think after this and the girl on the train I think we're fully done with these movies for a little while these sort of like prestige yeah beach read adaptations Gone Girl was really the only work like Woman in the Window was pretty inert like it was just like it was fine I guess yeah or well, not, again, no, no, it, Girl it, on the Train is that what I said yeah I said you said Woman on the Window but Girl on the Train also oh, very like also Girl inert. on the Train is very inert yeah Gone and, Girl is brilliant. I think Gone like, Girl is fantastic. And the crazy thing is that Girl on the Train has, has like this another prestige cast. Um, yep. And in fact, it had one prestige cast that changed to a different prestige cast because like <laughs> it originally had like, like Jared Leto and Chris Evans and then they dropped out and were replaced by I forget who. Yeah, but, I think uh, Luke Evans is in it. Yeah, Luke Evans. and it, But like, again, the, I think Gone Girl succeeds because Gone Girl is actually about something. Yes. Like it has the veneer of being sort of pulpy and a beach read, but it's actually Gillian Flynn is talking about something real and and thoughtful. Yeah. And then, and you have such a, and, it, and it's also like, I mean, I, I did read Gone Girl and Gone Girl I thought was a fantastic book. Yeah. Uh, the, and also the way it's structured is great. And then of course mm -hmm. you bring in Fincher and Fincher knows what he's doing. And like, it just, it all clicked together. Um, and these don't, and I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for this sort of genre or subgenre of thriller, but I definitely feel like we've now reached the fool me twice stage where it's like, we can't, I doubt you're ever going to see this kind of cast attached to this kind of thriller in the near future. Yeah. feels like most of them will be like the really cheap thrillers that like take place in like a remote cabin or something or or something like that yeah or it'll be something sort of like um the house at the end of the street like a up where jennifer lawrence was like an upcoming actress and you know yeah things like that i mean we've talked about this before like the thriller genre is one of my favorite genres but i think it all changed when like csi and law and order came on on and like kind of did away with those as movies so like now people are getting their fix weekly mm -hmm. in terms of like following procedurals we talked about a little bit a little about this when we talked about the little things um so I don't know, like, it seems like everything's now like an elevated thriller or a horror thriller. Something right, like yeah. Out or Us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has to be something sort of with the point, which is fine. I don't think it's like, I don't think like it's bad to have 
uh, you know, subtext, but I also feel like it has sort of eliminated the, the nineties thriller that we had before. Yeah. Which is a bummer because you know, I go or, back and I, I watch those quite frequently. I've watched Runaway Jury recently. So. And also, I think it's also a victim of just what the price point that studios are working at. Because yeah. on streaming, like I do think on streaming, you'll you'll keep getting these sort of 20 to $40 million movies just because they want content. But as something theatrically released, no, it'll either be a $5 million indie that played at Sundance or TIFF, or it will be you know, a, a $200 million blockbuster. There's no, there's this huge donut hole yeah. um, of, of films that aren't getting made anymore because- A donut hole inside a donut <laughs> Well, it's funny that you mentioned that one because that film would, would seemingly fit the bill of that kind of, you know, six, 40 to 60 million made for adults. Um, and it was a huge hit. And then Netflix is like, we will give you $500 million. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like this, this is the kind of movie that we little mystery to it's the funniest thing about how like the rules don't apply anymore once you hit streaming because yeah. it's not like it's not like knives out 2 is going to cost uh, 200 million dollars to make it's just they wanted it and so they're like here just take money yeah <laughs> well the rules apply if you're born baby Yes, thank you. Adam. <laughs> thank you for bringing that in. And and I should be I should I should be clear like the reason that like you know Ryan Johnson and and the producers are and whoever are getting paid a lot of money is because there's no back end on Netflix. There's no way yeah. to make that money up. So it's like we assumed that if you know normal if this had been released theatrically, you'd get profit participation, points on the back end, whatever, and that won't happen here. So let's just give you 100 million up front and call it a day. Yeah. Yep. That's how it goes now. <laughs> so, but you know, for Netflix, I think that Woman in the Window is doing exactly what they wanted to do. It's the number one movie on streaming right now. Feels like a movie people will check out, whether they like it or not. They spent, you know, an hour mm-hmm. and fifty no, minutes it's a, on Netflix. It's, yeah, no, it's a fine home for it. I mean, if this had been released in theaters, it would have flopped. It would have bombed. It would have yeah. gotten like a bad cinema score, mm-hmm. and it would have been like, you know, it would have fallen out of the the box office top ten in like two weeks so you know netflix is a much better home for it than uh than theaters would have been yeah i agree um yeah so yeah i don't Woman in the window bad movie but i i hope joe wright keeps making movies i hope he keeps saying too yeah that's the thing like i don't have that much more to say other than i think the ending is dog shit um but i do think joe wright's an interesting filmmaker and i i'm i feel like he's working on something already uh he's attached to do um gosh the uh eric larson book oh devil it's not devil in the right city no it's not devil in the white city is it Um, is it thunderstruck no oh in the garden of beasts yeah 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 but he was attached to do that in 2018 so who knows like he attached to it while he was working on um while he was doing uh, this and then before his spirit was crushed yeah oh but no he's in post-production on cyrano Oh, did he finish that? Okay. That's IMDb says he's in post-production on Cyrano with uh, Ben Mendelsohn, Kelvin Harrison Jr. and Haley Bennett. Okay. And Peter Dinklage as Cyrano. All right. So that (laughs) he's, yeah, that's supposed to come out 2021. And I expect, I would not be surprised if that, you know, popped up at a festival. Oh, it's a musical. Hell yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Christmas 2021. 
All right. False alarm, everyone. We're, we're, we're doing we're okay. <laughs> we're all right. We're all right. Yeah, we're doing fine. And maybe that would explain why he has done no press for one in the window. Because if he is looking to get on the Oscar train at the end of the year, why ruin it? with? Yeah, why, why bother with movie? a movie that was dumped <laughs> yeah. twice? Yeah. Um, I guess once or how it doesn't matter. All yeah, right. It checks out. All right. Well, with that, uh, let's move on to recently watched. Uh, Adam, what have you seen lately? Um, well, given that the season one A finale was this past Sunday, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Nevers. I can't remember if I've talked about it on the show or not. Um, I mean, it's an HBO series. It was supposed to be, you know, Joss Whedon's big return to television after making Avengers movies. He created it. Uh, he wrote and directed a number of the episodes in this first part of the first season. Um, they only got to shoot five episodes and then COVID shut production down. So they aired these five episodes um, as season one A, and then we'll get the second half of the season later this year. As everyone knows, Joss Whedon says that he quit the Nevers last November. <laughs> um, TBD on whether he quit or was forcibly removed due to a certain Warner Media investigation. Um, but that kind of put a taint on this show. Uh, and, you know, the marketing materials went out of their way to keep Joss Whedon's name out of, you know, the Nevers. Um, although I think maybe the first trailer said something about it, but it was a tricky show to market because, you know, he created the series and he spearheaded these five episodes and were, he cast it and, you know, came up with the world and the idea and then is no longer with the show when it's time for it to air. Um, all of this being said, I watched and very much enjoyed uh, The Nevers. It's set in uh, Victorian era England. And so it's hard to describe because it's a sci-fi series. Essentially what happens is, is it opens in Victoria, Victorian era England. And there are people, mostly women, who now have powers. Um, some of these powers can be really innocuous, like... Uh, they, you know, can make something turn cold. Other people, like the main character, gets these flashes where she can see what's going to happen to her in the future. So she'll get a flash of something that's going to happen in two days or later that day. Um, and, you know, the film delves into kind of the socio-political atmosphere of Victorian era London. So everyone knows about these women that have powers. They call them the touched. And uh, the men in power at the time are trying to uh, tamp it down. So they're trying to find ways to, um, you know, either use the press to sideline them or make people more scared of them. No one knows how these powers came about. It, it happened on one single day and no one can remember what happened on that day. It just magically appeared. You do get a glimpse of what happened on that day. And that's kind of the central mystery of these first few episodes. And in the fifth episode, there's a pretty huge twist and it is essentially the fifth episode is the first episode of the series. Like it really reveals, okay, here's what this series is about. Here's what's actually happening. And now we're going to move forward. Um, but until that point, it's still super compelling. I think the cast is tremendous. Laura Donnelly plays the main character. Um, it's a bunch of performers I'm not super familiar with. And then a couple that I had known, like Dennis O'Hara is in it. Uh, Tom Riley is in it and he's really good. Um, but it's largely Nick Frost is in it and he's really the guy on the poster behind you is in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Right here. Uh, And Olivia Williams, who I think is fantastic. Uh, And she's great in counterpoint. Um, 
but it you know it blends drama and historical fiction and sci-fi um and some like steampunk in a really neat way one of the main characters her power is like she's really good with technology so she's always inventing things so they've invented like essentially a car which cars don't exist at this point um so it's uh you know steampunk looking and kind of fun um but yeah I don't, like I don't know. I, I had a lot of fun with it. I think the characters are really compelling. I really, really enjoyed the big turn in episode five where it kind of reveals what's going on. There's, it has its own like central mystery. There's like a serial killer on the loose and she's a touched. And so you're trying to like track down her and find out what's happening. And I'm not a massive fan of Joss Whedon's TV shows. Um, I never really watched Buffy. I couldn't really get into Firefly. I've enjoyed his films. Like I enjoyed the Avengers. I enjoyed Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, so, you know, I don't have super strong feelings on Joss Whedon's writing one way or another, but I will say that Nevers is far less kind of like jokey or, um, uh, I don't know, like showy as like maybe some of the dialogue in the Avengers is. So I would say it's well worth giving a shot if you're into any of those things like Victorian era Lon London or sci-fi or steampunk. Like if any of that stuff interests you, I think it's worth checking out. It's got a really nice emotional undertone. Um, and I do just kind of feel like the, the Joss Whedon situation of it all has kind of uh, negatively affected the series in terms of like marketing it or making people aware of it um, because I've really dug it and I'm excited to watch more. They've got a new showrunner now. She's the one who is spearheading the next, uh, they're doing seven more episodes, which will start production this year. Um, and that'll be the rest of season one. So it was really supposed to be a 10 episode first season, but because of the COVID shutdown, they went ahead and expanded it to a 12 episode first season. So there's more episodes coming. Um, I don't think it's been renewed for a season two yet, but they've still got, you know, a number of episodes left to um, go through with. And it's on HBO and HBO Max right now. Um, and I'd be curious to hear people's thoughts on it because I really enjoy it. I know our uh, TV editor, Liz Shannon Miller, really enjoys it. Um, so yeah, if you were wondering what it was or if it's even worth watching, I would say yes. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes because now with a different showrunner. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's the thing. We were talking about this before we started recording. Like, it's like, it's it's hard to sort of sell to people like talented Pete, like Joss Whedon is a trash person who's like abusive, but like he can write. Like, and it sucks. Like, I wish, I wish talented, like, like bad people were not talented, but that's not how it yeah. works. Um, and he was like the A-lister for this shit. Like he right. was going to be the selling point for the series because the cast is not made up of people that, you know, really, mm -hmm. it was, a, it was going to be marketed as like, you know, the guy who made the Avengers movies, this is his next thing. Right. That was going to be how they were going to do it. And I feel like, you know, the thing that like when you were describing, because I haven't seen it, but the thing that's kind of stuck in my craw, it's like, there are all these powerful women, but men are trying to keep them down. We're going to yes. like show you. I'm like, oh, keep them down. Sort of like you did with Charisma Carpenter. Is that? Is, so is, there are, and there are a couple of very specific things that come up in the plot where I'm like, Ugh, gross. <laughs> so like, it's, I don't know. It's very complicated. I've talked to Liz about this a lot because it's like, yes, Joss Whedon, by most accounts is a garbage human and treated some women very, very terribly. These stories that he writes are pretty feminist and like empowering towards women. So it's this weird dichotomy of like, does that then negate, you know, these positive portrayals of women or these interesting and strong women that are being portrayed? It's a really tricky mm -hmm. balance. No, it absolutely I'm not is. I'm entirely sure how I come down on it. 
beyond I really enjoy this show and really like the like and care for the character. I mean, that's the sort of thing. Like, is is art, you know, preaching the morality of its of its creator, you know? And I think, you know, that then you're also getting into really tricky things. It's like, well, if I make a film and like the bad person succeeds, am I saying, you know, bad people, I want bad people to succeed. You know, yeah. it's sort of like, where do you follow this, uh, that line of thinking? But mm. yeah, uh, you've convinced me to maybe give the Nevers a shot. I have so I would many say if you like the first episode, you'll probably like the rest. If you okay. don't like the first episode, eh, you know, it right. might not be for you. So it's an hour. The first episode is just an hour. So uh, for me, uh, I am making my way through the uh, Disney animated catalog right now. And so last week I ended up rewatching both Hercules and Tarzan. And I haven't seen either in a very long time. And I think, and this is where Adam and I are going to disagree, but I think Hercules is bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tarzan is good, actually. Um, because like the thing about Hercules is that it doesn't seem to know what it really wants to say. Um, it's very unclear in sort of what its hero needs and wants. So like it starts out in being like, well, I need to find where I belong. And oh, wouldn't you know it, I belong among the gods. <laughs> so already we're kind of leaving this sort of like, like it's, it's like, it's a search for family, but also like his family is made of gods. So that's weird. It's sort of like, I need to find my family. And also my family are the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. Um, I was like, <laughs> yeah, I would also like to belong to that family. And then it does this weird sort of thing where it's like, you need to be a hero. Okay, well, what's a hero? And then it's like, well, a hero and then it's, they try to do the sort of like parody of celebrity athlete culture. And it's like, that's sort of where it's driving a lot of humor, but then it's like, okay, well then what's the pathos then? And he's like, well, you still haven't found what it really means to be a hero. And by the time you get to the end of the film and what Hercules decides, it just doesn't, it just doesn't follow. Like the, the, a, the sort of the character arc doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I also think it's kind of just uneven as well. Like, I think that, I don't think Phil really works as a character. He's Hercules trainer, voiced by Danny DeVito. I think this is some of Alan Menken's weakish songwriting. Uh, Phil's song is awful. I don't remember Phil's song. There you but go. I love Go the Distance, Zero to Hero, and Won't Say I'm in Love. <sighs> the Greek, the, 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 the gospel choir is a great part. Like there are piecemeal things that work, but then there are other elements that just stick out very poorly. Like Meg is a femme fatale kind of, like she's from the 1940s and it's like, okay, but we're also doing like a very precise parody of 90s athlete culture. So where does this character fit in? Um, so I just don't feel like Hercules gels. Um, and then so Tarzan had kind of dimmed in my memory and I was like, oh, this probably doesn't hold up. I think Tarzan works. I think Tarzan does that sort of child of two worlds thing in a way that does come together. And yeah, it's drawing. There's a little bit of Lion King in there. There's a little bit of Little Mermaid in there. But I think ultimately, not only is the animation, I think, gorgeous. I think it is the best animated film of the, of the era because they've really taken the computer animation and blending it with the 2D in a really fascinating way. Like there's a fluidity in Tarzan that you, I would say its closest relative is when the hunchback is swinging from the bell towers and stuff like in, hunch, like in Hunchback. I think that is as close as you get before Tarzan. 
Um, but also like Tarzan is doing other things really well. Like it, it's, it's, it feels like it's not relying entirely on its comic relief characters for jokes. So you're able to get jokes from the lead characters, which other films didn't do as much. Um, and I feel like it, like, I think the Phil Collins songs, I had, I was kind of dreading those and I think they work. I think they make them feel, I think they make the movie feel different. Um, while still having the emotions, even if it does veer a bit into the sort of Randy Newman singing about what he sees. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's Toy Story and that's, you know, oh, the thing is you'll be in my heart. And she's saying you'll be in my heart. But I think it all <laughs> kind of comes together with Tarzan in a way that I felt found really satisfying. I felt the jokes were good. I felt the emotional relationships were good. And I felt the characters' uh, central conflict was, was understandable and relatable. So, uh, that was, and I know, and I bring all this up because Adam has a great article on the site where he ranked the 90s Disney movies <laughs> and Tarzan's at the bottom of the list. People got super mad and I did not know people were super horned up for Tarzan. Um, I, did, to I me, didn't know I was horned up for Tarzan until I rewatched it. <laughs> I agree. I think the animation in Tarzan is really pretty. Uh, I actually don't mind the Phil, Phil Collins songs that much. I just find that movie really boring. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my personal taste. But to me, that movie doesn't do it for me just because I'm very bored. Um, and it, it feels like, cause it was around the same time as like the mummy. So, you know, dealing with that same era and those kinds of, there were a lot of movies set in that era around that time, I think. Um, but I don't know. I, I found that movie boring with Hercules. I really liked those three songs I just mentioned. I liked the kind of like abstract animation, which I know is not everyone's thing, but they were kind of, pulling from like greek um art and stuff in that film. well even though though even though pulling from like even though it's inspired by greek art like the greeks were very like very like we have to be true to form mm -hmm. and this and and hercules is like well it's true to form but also the exaggeration of being an animated film so it's, yeah. it, it's these two styles i feel like competing against each other i get that and i think hercules for me is it's mostly the songs and i find it pretty funny uh mm. but i i'll confess i haven't rewatched it since i made that list um, I don't even remember when that list was published. So it's been since then, since I've seen Tarzan or Hercules. Um, but I don't know. It's like, you know, you have those movies where like, oh, like that movie puts me in a mood that I don't really want to be in. Tarzan mm -hmm. is that for me. Like it just okay. is kind of like a sleepy mood. I don't know. Yeah, I, again, I went into it sort of being like, I bet this doesn't hold up. And I was surprised at how much I was still with it. Because I liked it Everyone when it came out. <laughs> yeah well now i'm starting now i'm finally moving into the 2000s where i think it gets really interesting for disney because yeah like home on the range <laughs> before that before no before that because so the, the the disney renaissance we can generally agree ends at tarzan yeah do you um, want to talk about when it begins <laughs> well, adam's laughing because i got into this huge back and forth on twitter with william viviani um about should should rescuers down under be included in the disney renaissance <laughs> and i don't think it should i still don't think it should i think you know i think it, it is a film that belong from a storytelling perspective is not as strong at any level like animation wise yeah but like i feel like if that's all it takes then that's a question of technology rather than artistry um I agree with you, by the way. I, I, and I, as someone as a kid, I really liked Rescuers Down Under. But if we're talking about what films revitalized Disney, yeah, Rescuers Down Under was not a huge success. And, and Mermaid not, was. And not only that, but like if we're looking at like, well, you know, not every film is greeted with you know in its time. I sure, but it's been thirty years since Rescuers. It's never been greeted as as a great film. 
It's no. never, it's never, Disney has never treated it like that. There's never been a demand for that. Maybe it's respected in the animation community, but that to me is a very limited legacy. Um, that is kind of es- makes it more esoteric and insular rather than part of a revival. Like you can't just put it on a pedestal next to Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, which is where it falls between. Like you yeah. can't say it's at that level. I agree um, with that. So, uh, but no, Disney Andrew- Renaissance starts with Howard Ashman. Yes. <laughs> um, and so I feel like, Although someone's going to come in and be like, Howard Ashman worked on songs for Oliver and Company. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. fuck, fuck off. <laughs> Oliver and Company sucks. <laughs> um, but I feel like uh, the 2000s are interesting because, and there are films in there that I have not seen. Like I haven't seen Fantasia 2000. Uh, I haven't seen Dinosaur. I haven't uh, seen Dinosaur. And, uh, but then like, I'm also like, I'm eager to revisit Atlantis and Lilo and Stitch. I watched Lilo and Stitch for the first time last weekend. And I oh, enjoyed nice. it. Yeah. yeah. I had never seen it. I remember I like, oh, it being very it. funky. Dean DeBlaw, uh, who is the shepherd of the How to Train Your Dragon franchise, mm-hmm. and Chris Sanders, who co-directed the first How to Train Your Which Dragon. Which is why Stitch and Toothless look very similar. Yes. Yeah. But I don't think I even knew the story of Lilo and Stitch very well, because I was very surprised that it starts in like an alien planet. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, I thought cool. this had something to do with Hawaii, but go on. <laughs> what was the other one you mentioned? Atlantis. Oh, Yeah. We rewatched that last year. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to, to watch Atlantis because then I want to read Drew Taylor's whole thing about yeah. the history of that project. It's very interesting. Yeah, they had grand big ideas that got changed. And that's mm-hmm. when you start to see the shift in the Disney stuff. And, the, and, and when you look, and also to that era about like, you know, those big changes. I mean, on Vulture, uh, there's a great, oral history about all the changes that happened with uh, emperor's new groove Mm -hmm. and so again that era is very it's kind of fungible and it's 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 but i think it's i think because it's outside of the disney renaissance it it demands an exploration that hasn't really uh that i don't know i think it's more i think it's one thing to be like here are the films we revere okay it's like but why do we not revere these movies and i think that those though that to me is a more interesting question yeah for sure All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood and send us reader hot takes. Yes, please send us reader hot takes. We'll read them on the show. Uh, You can follow me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.